0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm gonna be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. This week's guest is the advertising whiz kid who created the landmark 1987 Grim Reaper ad campaign that really drove home the seriousness of the AIDS epidemic. I was parting pretty hard at that time and this campaign had a profound effect on my life and in fact, it brought about a 180 degree change in my lifestyle for the better. Since that time, Simon has continued to blaze a trail through the advertising and marketing worlds. He's one of only a handful of Australians to have won television commercial of the year, magazine ad of the year and newspaper ad of the year. He's been winner of the advertising agency of the year twice, winner of every major advertising award that counts, including the Cannes Grand Prix. He co-founded and built the 15th biggest marketing services group in the world in just eight years. He's also authored six books, including Why People Fail, which won silver medal for best US business success book in 2012. His latest book, Win Fast, is out now via Penguin Random House. Simon's also given keynote speeches all over the world to in excess of 60,000 people and has shared the stage with the likes of Richard Branson and Tony Robbins. He was featured as a shark on Australia's original version of Shark Tank, which was Channel 7's Dragon's Den. He's currently one of the most sought-after international mentors to business owners and CEOs. I've had the great fortune to work with Simon on a few occasions over the years, and I'm happy to report that in addition to his brilliant mind, he's really a wonderful collaborator and an all-round nice guy. Please welcome to the Blank Canvas, Simon Reynolds. Simon Reynolds. Good morning. Good morning. Good to be here. Thanks, mate. You know, it was very interesting this morning as I was preparing and, you know, awaiting your arrival, it occurred to me that you've actually had a far greater impact on my life than I'd ever suspected. Okay. (laughs) Tell (laughs) all. So, okay. The 80s. It was at a time in my life where I was partying very hard, very promiscuous having a good time but getting up to um, a lot of questionable activities and the Grim Reaper ad campaign came out. I know pro- probably every interview you've ever done, people start with the Grim Reaper, but that was my f- first exposure to the name Simon Reynolds mm, mm. And, and that ad scared the shit out of me and it really did change my life and my behaviour. I literally thought, okay, I need to get out of the party scene this is going to take me out if I don't change my behavior. Yeah. It really did have an impact. I know it did with a lot of people, but it definitely did with me. And I literally thought, okay, I need to find other answers. I need to break this cycle. And I ended up um, starting Transcendental Meditation. Oh, wow. Fantastic. And it was through the course of that, it really helped get me out of the party scene. And it actually got me looking for other answers. And right around that time, I met my soon to be wife, Kate Sobrano. And one of the things we had in common was that I was seeking answers. I was looking for spiritual answers. Yes, I wanted to be successful in business and in life, but I also, I wanted answers to those big questions. And when we first met Kate and I, it's one of the things we really connected on. And then we have been together for 30 years since. Wow. So I kind of went, you know what, without that ad campaign, I probably wouldn't have connected with Kate and it wouldn't have sort of led down that whole path.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's amazing how over the years I've met people who have been impacted by it. And it was extraordinary because it, it only ever ran for nine days, I think. It was supposed to run for 12. And then even the government, they were getting so much furore over it that even they stopped it three days early. But now, you know, 30 years later or whatever it is, it is still frequently in the papers. It's frequently referenced. And uh, it's a, a great privilege to have been given that brief because, you know, you spend in advertising, you spend all, all this time, you know, advertising soap powder or cornflakes or whatever. And it's so rare you get a chance to actually impact society. So, um, you know, I really went for it on with that. That's cool. For those who weren't around then or
0: aren't familiar with it, can you just give us a little more info on what the campaign was, what the brief
1: was? Yeah. Well, the brief was that AIDS was rocketing up and a lot of people thought it was going to be the next black plague. They thought it's just going to take over the world because the rates of AIDS were just escalating. And there was a prevalent view amongst Australians that you can only get AIDS if you were an IV drug user or you were gay. And that was not the case in a number of countries. For instance, in Italy, they had almost 50% women uh, at that time who were getting AIDS. And so Australia had to wake people up. There was plenty of information about AIDS out there, but Australians, uh, your typical Australian was not taking any notice of it. And so we really had to shock them. And what we'd seen is research in Britain where they ran a kind of soft campaign and it did nothing. And the AIDS levels kept on rising and rising. So the Australian government led by Neil Blewett, the health minister at that time, very brave guy. And of course, through the NAC AIDS organization led by Ida Butros, who did an extraordinary job with her team of Bill Patel, et cetera. Um, they said, well, if we don't do something, it's going to be a disaster here. And, and so they had to shock people. So the ad was that it was designed to say, hey, you know, slap you in the face and say, you've got to do something even if you're heterosexual. So for those people who didn't see it, it was the Grim Reaper, the character of death, bowling balls in a bowling alley, but the pins were people. Now, what a lot of people, when they see that ad now, you know, sitting on YouTube, what they don't realise is there's no special effects back in those days. It was a real bowling alley with stunt people as the pins. It was a real five-foot bowling ball that was bowled at them And when they got hit by the pins, they had to dive left and right so the ball didn't come down and crush them when that happened. And so super dangerous ad. In fact, there's only one director that we briefed, Ian MacDonald, who said he could even do it. But he did it and he did a brilliant job and the rest is history. Wow, that's incredible.
0: It actually had an impact on me as a sort of aspiring commercial director as well. I wasn't at that time directing commercials I was making music videos and skateboarding videos and corporate videos and other things. But I was kind of like, wow, that's like, that's really cool storytelling. And, you know, it excited me. So, anyway, it's kind of interesting, just as you're saying it, that that then led later on. We ended up working together and I ended up directing, you know, ad campaigns for you. Yeah. Which is is another story. We'll come to that later. But, um, wow, that's amazing. That's only just... The whole timeline's just kind of flooded back as you were describing that. Yeah. And also, interestingly, Ian McDonald was one of the directors that I bid on against um, for the big NRL campaign. Yes, yes. And what so- an ad that was. Well, I don't know, mate. I guess it stood the test of time, hasn't it? It was the first, it was the launch of
1: the NRL competition, wasn't it, that one? Yeah. That ad was so important in the history of the NRL because there was the problems with the whole Super League run by News Corp. And they were finally, the two two groups were getting back together, the original NRL and, and, and Super League. And, you know, it was a troubled time for League. And you know we we did that ad which was that Rumba song um get uh, knocked down i I get get up again exactly yeah and that was first of all it was a great song at that time and everybody loved that song yeah and second of all it was about as you know league is down but we're going to get back up again yeah and you know we're going to be amazing and then finally it was about the hits of rugby league, the strong tackles of rugby league, it's just one of the highlights of the game. And it's about getting knocked down as a player and getting getting up again. So it was a really good solution. And what you did with that, you know, a bit like the had the complexity of what you had to do uh, of shooting all those teams. I remember there was just an unbelievable amount of footage. And somehow you've got to get it into 60, 30, 90 seconds. And make it a great story and make it great. I mean, that was a huge job. You did an awesome job on it. Thanks, mate. Thanks. You really did.
0: Yeah, the politics was intense, wasn't it? Because you had all the different teams, all the different stakeholders, all having a different team that they barrack for, even aside from the brief of the job. So they're going like, no, I don't want to tackle from Manly. It's got to be like a try from Cronulla. And we're just like, oh, it was probably the most difficult edit of any campaign I've ever made. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That was, it was a labyrinth of, 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 <laughs> of options. <Yeah. laughs> so let's go back again to the, um, to the Grim Reaper moment. I'm just, I'm interested because, uh, as I mentioned, I sort of went off on this meditation path, which really helped me at the time. And then I also remembered this morning that I bumped into you every now and then at the meditation place in Paddington. We, we, you know, had the same meditation teacher. Now, did it have a
1: you know similar impact on your life at that time? And do you still meditate? Yeah, I I do uh, each day. Oh, f- five days a week. I don't do it much on the weekend. And yeah, TM or Transcendental Meditation was was amazing. John McGrath, the real estate agent, uh, introduced me to um, uh, TM, and it was just really amazing, the the concept that, okay, we go to the gym and we work out, we try and eat healthy food uh, and we try and sleep, you know, to to be healthier. But what about the mind? You know, what, what is the average person doing to refine their mind, to improve their mind, reduce stress, get clarity of thinking, increase their creativity, all that kind of stuff? And the answer is nothing. And I think that that is insane. You know, here's this amazing operating system for the most amazing known creature on earth, and most people are doing nothing to optimize it. And so when TM came around, and, you know, the thing about TM is beautifully researched. It's got 30, 40 years of of research from, you know, quality universities about how it really does lower cholesterol, how it does improve your mood, how it does reduce stress and all that kind of stuff. And when you read it, you just, at the end of it, you, you just have to say, I've got to do this. I mean, is that how you felt? Yeah, well, look. It
0: it um, initially it was something that just helped me break the cycle of partying every weekend and you know smashing myself. I kind of went, you know what? Uh, um, It takes days to recover from that. Like I became conscious that it took days even longer to recover and that the meditation didn't go as well or I didn't feel as good and I could really feel the parting impinge on my mental awareness, my perceptions, my energy levels, all the rest of it. So that was the first part of the cycle. And then I guess as I kept doing it and my lifestyle and my health and everything improved and and my performance at work, I kind of went, wow, there's something in this. And I guess it was then I sort of, you know, started pondering deeper spiritual and philosophical questions Mm. through the course of it. And um so yeah, that's how it helped me. I don't I I guess when I met Kate, um Kate's a Scientologist, as you know, many know. And I kind of looked at her and I was like, wow, whatever you're doing, you're Uh one of the most extraordinary people I've ever met with this incredible aura of warmth and energy and, you know, talent. I was like, okay let you know let's read a book so I did I read some books and I sort of went down that path with Kate and her and I've been together 30 years and you know I use those tools daily Kate and I both do in our life and they've you know brought a lot to my life so I guess the meditation after a while because Kate and I didn't have that in common that sort of petered out and um I, I went down the other path but I guess it's um I mean it's a big part of my life and it was yeah, it's just sort of interesting at that turning point. You were there. That's what occurred to me this morning, which was amazing.
1: I'd never thought of that before. Yeah, So, yeah. you know, thanks, mate. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course, <laughs> absolutely. Sounds like you owe me for two things so far. That's We're only five minutes in. <laughs> that's
0: right. And so tell me, do you consider yourself a really spiritual person? Like what I always wanted to do was to be a good person and be spiritually aware but also be commercially successful and many people say, you know, you can't do both, it's gotta be one or the other. I see you as somebody who's managed to combine those two things. Are you a spiritual person? And if so, how do you combine that with being one of the most successful business, marketing and
1: advertising dudes on the planet? Uh, well, mate, you're very, very kind with that. But look, I think, am I a spiritual person? I aspire to be a spiritual person. I don't want to be one of those people that goes, "I'm spiritual," you know. You know what I mean? Because yeah. you know, I'm I'm trying to get better, like you. I, I just want to be a good guy, and I want to, and I believe in God, and I want to try and connect to to God, and that's my version of, of spirituality. You know, often the word spirituality has been kind of dumbed down. I think into oh, just you know, you're aware, but I think it's much more than that. It's connected to. The universal life force, right? It's a, whether it's God or 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 you know whatever p- people would call it. So um, yeah, I'm you know I'm on that path. I think it's the most important path for a human. I, I, I my personal belief is that uh, at the end of our life, you know, you'll get to heaven or some version of it, and it you know it will be off stage, and it it will be completely apparent to us that this is part of a bigger picture, and and it's got divine intent behind it so from that point of view yeah I, i'm spiritual and then you, you it's it's really interesting the two angles of spirituality do you kind of avoid society and live a, a kind of somewhat parallel existence while everybody's kind of uh doing sodom and gomorrah and and make trying to make money uh, over here or do you integrate spirituality into that life and i'm definite believer in the latter and i think it's much harder you know, I think it's much harder to remain in the fire and keep spiritual principles of decency and, and kindness and, and, and th- praising God and thinking of God and stuff like, uh, stuff like that. So it's, you know, it's a daily challenge, but it's something that I'm focusing on daily to try and get better. And I think it makes people done right. It makes people wealthier. There's a very interesting book Written about 30 years ago called Business as a Calling. And it shows that a lot of the most successful business people are very spiritual, are active churchgoers, have a, a, you know, a whole set of moral principles that the typical person doesn't necessarily have. Now, most people who aren't in business don't believe that. There's a lot of people who think that people who got wealthy got wealthy by ripping people off. But that's against natural law. You know, the main way people got wealthy was helping people. So why is Bill Gates the second or third richest person currently in the world? Is because he helps so many people, you know, run their lives through software. Or why is Bezos the richest person in the world? Because so many of us buy stuff and are helped by Amazon. So really business is just the, the art and science of, of helping people in often large numbers, you know. And, and so if you're an evil person, if you're a bad person, if you're just trying to rip people off, they're never the people that make a lot of money because other people discover them, they get arrested, or karma comes Karma and- catches up with Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You know.
0: Mate, that's really interesting. Lots of good points in there. Funnily enough, with Gates, I used to think that way with him. I thought, wow, he's a good guy and he's helped a lot of people. This year, I'm not so sure, but, you know, that's another whole conversation. Yeah, sure, what with <laughs> the vaccine stuff. Yeah, it just feels like the, you know, as a person that's worked in the beast of, you know, advertising and media and that kind of thing and knowing what a gold rush the vaccine uh, is, I'm kind of like with him having invested with his philanthropic bodies to so many of those vaccine companies, I'm kind of like, hang on, there's a conflict of interest that scares me there and and I'm suspicious of him now and and his honourable motives. But certainly, We'll give him credit for, for the earlier stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know he was an investor in vaccine companies. Yeah, well, well he, he donates a lot of money to a lot of the different um, vaccine companies and, and others. So, yeah, there's a bit of a um, yeah, few tentacles there that kind of give me the willies. Yeah. but um,
1: The thing about Gates is, though, he did something very, very difficult. He walked away from being at the top. Of, of the world of, of, of business. And as far as I recall, he's given $27 billion away. He's the greatest philanthropist that, that's ever lived, and he's only just begun. And uh, also, a lot of people don't give Gates and Warren Buffett enough credit for, I don't know whether you've heard of this system, but they've got several hundred billionaires, I think to say that they will give at least, uh, it's called the the pledge, they will pledge at least half their net worth to charity before they die. And they've signed pledges. So his collective impact on charity, on philanthropy will be so immense. Uh, It's it's never before been done in history. So there could be plenty of bad sides to it, I I don't know. But man, by the time he dies, he will have uh, made some contributions. Good point.
0: Uh, mate, so look, it's it's been a crazy year. It's 2020. I know you've recently moved back from California to Australia. Challenging transition, um, pivoting like, uh, you know, I'm sure like the rest of us have. What are you up to here since you've moved back?
1: Yeah, we were in LA for 12 years. And um, my wife, Catherine Eisman, she's a uh, has been in TV mostly in America since she was 21 and she's Aussie. But um, yeah, coming back is a strange feeling. But I tell you what, because we've been away for so long, you really appreciate stuff that I didn't necessarily appreciate when I was in Australia. But did I appreciate the beaches? Yeah, I like the beaches, but I'd grown up with the beaches. So I didn't fully get how amazing they are. But when you've been in America for a long time, the Australian beaches are, are pretty good. Or the friendliness and authenticness of the Aussies, or, or even just the fact that the food is... So, so tasty. Yeah, so tasty, the ingredients, are, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we came back and really appreciated being here. We've only been here three months, but really appreciated it. And then, of course, it made it easy because LA is in such trouble with COVID at the moment. We actually moved out to the desert for three months to avoid it. We were out in Palm Springs. And then we came back, and, and in answer to your question, um, My life hasn't changed much because since I've been over in the States, I basically mentor entrepreneurs and CEOs online. So nothing really changed. I have been doing it in America and I still have American clients, but I had Australian clients and now it's just a different room. So the only thing my clients notice is the background's slightly different. Wow. behind. So for me, it's been a seamless transition to just helping helping business people grow their businesses. and Because I don't n- normally see them in person anyway. And for Kath, I mean, it's really early days. She's just having a chat to a few potential options here for her career and she's also got this amazing sock company called high heel jungle which has been huge in the states with the kardashians wearing it and rihanna wearing these socks and stuff and that's all online too or mostly online and so you know she's just kind of gearing up with that here so it's been pretty damn easy from that point of view the only problem is we've got about 12 suitcases we still haven't unpacked because there's no room for them you know it's uh that's a drawback but it's been easy and i tell you what you really notice is the difference between long-term friendships and short-term friendships. So we've got some good friends in California, but it's nothing like knowing someone for 20 years and walking in here and, you know, just saying hi. It's just, it's another level. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's beautiful. Mm. Mate,
0: I'm going to go back to advertising for a minute, even though that's not really what you're doing now. Mm. Um, other things that came to mind when I was um, thinking about our chat was I remember this at a time I was directing commercials and I remember, you you know, you were winning all the awards, you were like the cool whiz kid ad guy, and then I remember you went over to uh, John Singleton's advertising agency, Mm. which, you know, huge agency, very, very successful, but they didn't enter ads in awards and it was more about just, you know, results driven, two E's you know, those classic Aussie brands. And it was kind of like, what? Simon Reynolds is going over to singers, you know, and we heard rumors of, you know, million dollar, you know, sign on fees and all this sort of stuff. So I'm just curious, tell me about that time.
1: And was that a difficult decision to to go there? And how did it play out for you? Yeah, well, look, you're absolutely right. There was kind of a uh, two camps and still are in advertising. The camp which I was in, which was creativity is everything, you've got to do brilliant work, you've got to, you know, amaze people with with what you do and that will also, in our opinion, more often than not, sell more product. And then there was this other school which was, that's all a load of shit. You should just be hitting them hard with a product message or putting it in a jingle and uh, that's going to be much more effective. And the, these camps were at war for decades and, you know, there's a bit of a Cold War still between them. And I'd had my, opened my second agency, which was called Andromeda. And I was doing everything. So, you know, I was the creative director. I was also the, you know, running all the accounts and, and you know, we had staff, but I, I was the only partner in there. I didn't have like my prior agency, two partners. So the first reason I did it is I was exhausted, absolutely exhausted. I just wanted a rest. And, you know, the thought of going into one of these big agencies, which from a creative standpoint, just didn't have the same degree of difficulty like to write an ad for the standards of that company could be done like that versus having to do something that was actually considered brilliant so it was it was a rest to be in there number one and and number two was money uh it was a large amount of money um that you know, Singer is an incredible businessman, and in my view, a terrific person too. You know, he's, he's completely honourable in all my dealings with him. You know, very cool cat, big picture thinker. He wasn't stuck in all this kind of bitching, uh, low level advertising land. He he was well above it. He was more successful than every other person in advertising. He knew the most powerful people in the world. I'd be in there, and Kerry Packard ring him up for advice his tentacles of power were unparalleled he was uh, is one of a one of a kind in australian certainly in, a, in australian advertising and that was the third reason i just wanted to see how this machine worked and uh you know it was it was an eye opener because a totally different way to live a totally different way to work a totally different set of principles not worse not better just different
0: yeah No, that's really, really cool, really interesting to hear. So you were 21 when you created the Grim Reaper campaign. How old are you at this point
1: with Singo? Uh, I was 28 when I joined him, and that was public company, so I went on the board of that. Um, And, you know, I thought I was ancient. Uh, But now I look and I go, 28, I mean, you know, that's that's nothing. Yeah. But... um, yeah, so I was 28 and it was a weird world because they, they'd hired Mo from Mojo and for people who aren't in advertising, he, was, he and Joe were the king jingle makers and he, he really built that agency, the second leg of it, you know, up to being really big. He played a really big part along with Singo, of course. And he inside that agency, he was the king. So we were sitting in this building in the city 20 stories up and everybody had the same office. But Mo, the king of jingles, liked to work at home in his boat shed. So Singo built a replica of a boat shed 20 stories up. So when you w- walked into Mo's office, it was like being in a boat shed just by the water and he'd sit there because that's what he loved, being in the boat shed. And he was earning a, earning, earning a fortune. And, and I'd never done a jingle. And I, so I watch how these jingles were made. And these people with guitars would walk in, I'd see them walk through the lobby and they go into the beach shed. And then next, uh, an hour and a half later, the guy with the guitar would walk out and it was fully formed. There was a jingle, you know. So they did it so fast and uh, it was uh, amazing. It was like some kind of voodoo type of advertising that could be created this quickly and and everybody loved it and everybody would be dancing to the jingles. And the weird thing is, what do most people remember now, 20 years later? they remember the jingles. So they're so powerful. You know, sometimes my wife is singing some, you know, jingle about a cereal or something. You know, you know good on your mum, tip-top's the one. And she'll be singing in the kitchen even now. We learned them from guys like Mo and Joe when we were kids. Yeah, mate,
0: spot on. You know, I watched the doco just recently on Mo and Joe um, on the ABC, fabulous doco, and it occurred to me that uh, those jingles and those ads Um, created a kind of romance uh, and, in a way, built the kind of Aussie male culture of that time. And it was another one of the things that sort of prompted me to aspire to want to make TV commercials and direct TV commercials. And I think it was, there was certainly a glamour and a prestige and a whatever to the business at that time. Um, But looking back, it occurred to me that it's just not like that anymore. And I felt like it was a really cool thing to do then to make those ads, whether you're writing, directing, whatever. Whereas now, it's kind of like I tell my daughter, oh, here's the latest ad I've just made. She's like, oh, yeah, you know,
1: ho-hum. But- because <laughs> she's not even seeing but, it because she's not watching tv presumably
0: yeah yeah, yeah that too they're, yeah. yeah they're all on the streaming and youtube and mm-hmm. um, all of that but it's interesting the way the advertising world has changed and I, I guess a good question is why did you leave advertising and working in agencies when you did and you went out on the business consulting and writing books and that whole path what what prompted that
1: yeah well the the initial prompter was that we went to the States and I'd owned companies since I was 23 and I just didn't want to open another company in America and have all these staff. And potentially, we didn't know if we'd be back in a year, set this company up and then have to just leave and go back to Australia. So I I wanted to be a business mentor because that was a way of doing something interesting and filling my days without opening a company. So that was the first thing. But advertising now, let me start with this caveat. When I started at 18 in advertising, there are all these old guys saying, oh, mate, you missed the good period. Oh, in the old days. It was it was fantastic. It was unbelievable, right? And when I left the industry 25 years later or so, people are saying to the new guys coming in, oh, 25 years ago, that was when it was brilliant, you know? And, and in 25 years' time, they're going to say to a new guy coming in, right now when most of the industry thinks it's a terrible time. That was a great time. We had it all back then, right? So that's gonna go forever, that attitude. So I gotta, we gotta be careful of that. Having said that, we've reached this point where two things happened. The first was advertising was one of the only fields in the world where what you would get was total luck. You could make a fortune with the ad someone created or it could do nothing for you. It could be useless. Now, anything else, if I'm in the table business, someone orders a table from me, they're gonna get a table. And if I sell uh, bread, if someone wants bread, they're gonna get what they want. But in advertising, you want a campaign that's gonna make you a fortune. This is only a small chance you'll get it. A lot of advertising, it was failing then and even now, right? So what happened was, all these CEOs of the corporations that were paying for it were saying, well, I know exactly what I'm going to get in every other area of my business except for marketing. I'm cutting the budget because this could be a waste of money for me. I don't know. I'm not sure whether this stuff even works. Does this brand out the people singing to? Has it, has it made much of a difference? I can't see much of a difference half the time. So there was this new realm of CEOs searching for efficiency and effectiveness And result. So that was the first problem for advertising. Sometimes it worked unbelievably, sometimes it didn't. The second thing that happened, of course, is the internet. And uh, not only did it mean that a lot of people didn't want a magazine ad or as many radio ads or as many TV ads, because what was hot was the internet. And that's a big factor. But also, the rigor of the internet suddenly made advertising predictable. You can run a Facebook ad, and you can know that it cost me $2.26 to get a lead, and based on X, Y, and Z, it's going to cost me $14, $150, $1,200 to get a sale. It's predictable. Now, it often fails as well. You know, I coach a lot of people who are failing with online ads, so it's not perfect, but all of a sudden, you know much more than traditional advertising what you're going to get, and you can kill it within three hours if it's no good, whereas if you do a big TV ad, you know, you spend a lot of your money up front. So for all those reasons, typical advertising is in trouble and it's become, it's become a lot less interesting for creative people because the CEOs are saying, I'm not giving you as much money to do that ad, so you can't do much. People aren't seeing the ads and then everybody else is going, well, why don't we just put the money into these these little online classified ads to, you know, to make as much more money. So it's a challenging period. What's the future of advertising? Amazing, because it's just going to adapt and come up with some new, incredible way to be creative. So I don't, I don't subscribe to this whole view that it's going down. It's just changing, and it's going to be extraordinary, just in different ways. Beautiful.
0: Love it. And I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. And, you know, even doing this podcast, this, this is something for me that's, you know, come out of this year. Okay, the work dried up. Okay, what else am I going to do? So feel like an old dog learning new tricks, but I'm enjoying it and it's sort of opening up another whole world of possibilities. So that's a a, a, you know a good example.
1: And your podcast has got real energy. People are getting behind it. People are talking, sharing, sharing it. And all of a sudden, look, think about what we were doing in advertising. We were calling another company up and saying, could you show my message? Now you're affecting hundreds of thousands of people because you're a broadcaster yourself we don't need any of these middlemen anymore and that will become apparent to many more people you know they were called broadcasters well we're in a narrow cast world now and and you know you're at the forefront of that cool mate (laughs)
0: that's that's kind of cool it's so funny because it was just i mean it's a classic example of of creativity you know out of adversity isn't it yeah COVID hit, we're at home. Okay, what can we do at home? Oh, okay, you can, you know, talk to people. Yeah. And, you know, do a podcast. So, it wasn't some, you know, bright idea. It was just like, okay, what can we do with what we've got? Okay, let's do that. And then as I started doing it, I was like, wow, this is a really cool space. You know, like you said, by cutting out the middlemen, you're able to control the content. Like, you know, whether I've been directing TV series or commercials or music videos or whatever, often there's so many stakeholders and it's such a committee decision on the creative and the eventual product. But this is something, it's kind of liberating, isn't it, to do something where, well, you're in control of the content. Yeah. it does. It sort of gets the creative juices going and you're like, wow, what else could we do with it? Could we, you know, turn it into a book? Could we turn it into a TV series? No, 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 no. It's, it's um, you know, the possibilities are endless really, aren't
1: they? Oh, absolutely. And, and your position as someone of influence will escalate to incredible levels over time because people listen to you and they, they have a relationship with you even though you've never met them. Whereas your typical ad, you know, I've got to be persuaded that that ad in a, hypothetically, a magazine, that I should pay attention. But people who are following you, they believe in what you say. So one day, if you ever advertise, when you recommend something, it will have a lot more power than the typical ad.
0: Yeah, no, good point, mate. I've got a business guru and mentor in front of me, I kind of thought, wow, there's probably going to be some entrepreneurs listening to this. So I thought I should ask a few business specific questions. Uh, So this is like a classic question for a business podcast, but here you go. What's your formula for expansion and business
1: scalability? Okay. Well, let me answer that at several levels. The first is the mental level. So There's a great saying, don't make your small business, make you small-minded. And I think that a lot of business owners must aim higher of what they expect from themselves, of what they should believe about themselves. First of all, the first mission is to aspire to be amazing in your field. Now, very few people aspire to be amazing in the field. They aspire to improve or a typical business person to grow 15% or whatever, but when you aim for greatness in your field or in your business, you've got a much better chance of achieving something extraordinary than if you're just trying to iterate, uh, you know, vaguely improve your company, increase the profits somewhat. So first of all, it's mental. That's one level that, that I think is really important. When I coach people, I'm always making sure they've got a champion mindset, not a just a participant mindset. And then second of all, it's strategy you know, we have two choices as business people. We can offer the same thing everybody else is offering and try and manage our company better. That's a valid strategy. There are plenty of products that aren't any better. That mineral water is not any better than the other 10 mineral waters. So you've got to manage the company really well. The other way is you can try and do something that's different. You, try, you can try and uh, be 15, 20, 30% different, maybe 100% different, maybe profoundly different from what's out there. And also try and manage your company well. Paradoxically, it's safer to do something that's a bit different. But most people are just too scared to do that. So they're often trying to just manage the company well, offering the same product as everybody else. So strategically is the next level that we need to try and be different from everybody else. And thirdly, and there's four levels the way I see it, is marketing. Everything sales and marketing. Nothing happens until a salesman. It's all academic, right? But I can't tell you how many businesses are going broke because they can't be bothered to learn how to sell or they they find selling uh, is unattractive or they don't know how to market. They do the same thing they've been doing 10 years ago and they just don't learn how to say, do online ads or do direct mail or how to price things or just marketing. But most of... Business is marketing and sales. Even if you've got just an ordinary product, you can make millions and millions of dollars if you're good at marketing and sales. So that's the next level. And and then the final part of it, I think, is how you use your time. You know, so many people waste so much time. You know, they go, oh, I'm so busy, I'm working 50, 60 hours a week. But, you know, as Thoreau said, it's not enough being busy, so are the ants. What are you busy doing? And most people are wasting a huge amount of time as, as entrepreneurs. I love that. Thanks for those insights, mate.
0: That's really interesting. It's a big, it's a big area. Yeah, it's a, so, it's, a, it's a big question. So I, I appreciate that. Um, on that busy days, what does your day
1: look like? Well, I am kind of the opposite of how I was when I owned businesses, where I was working late at night and on the weekends. I, I get up in the morning. And I do a morning ritual. So I'm big on the morning ritual that, you know, I do a little bit of prayer, do a little bit of visualization. I go through my goals. I just have some focusing statements about the person I want to be. I do five minutes reading or listen to a podcast, but that's about it. And then I look at my um, to-do list. Then the kids wake up, do the whole kids thing, half the time taking to school my aim is to start work at 9. I know yeah, I used to start work at 7, 7.15, now 9 o'clock. So I start work at 9 and I coach people. So I coach people all over the world uh, on, on business, uh, one-on-one in, in most cases, some groups, but mostly one-on-one. And it's amazing. I coach everybody from people making no money at all to people turning over. Currently, I've got uh, one client doing $620 million a year. I've got another client doing a billion a year um uh in in revenue just massive businesses as as well but a lot of the issues are still the same how to be better how to how to make more money how to be less stressed all that kind of stuff so i do that for much of the day and then the rest of the time i'm just kind of looking at investments or learning myself and i finish on the dot at five forty-five. that's it wow that's impressive yeah. It's weird because I'm alone most of the day, but talking to people most of the day. I don't know whether you find that as a podcast. You're doing it physically, but I, everybody just pops up on a screen for me. So I'm just there with two cats most of the day. Uh, and yet they, I'm engaged with the world, but not, I, I, don't know, I never see anybody's pants. I only see them uh, from, from here. Isn't that amazing?
0: <laughs> wow, that that is such a trip. Well, some of the podcasts I'm doing face to face, but you know, this year quite a few of them have been via Zoom and stuff as well. But I'm, I mean, I'm not just doing the podcast. I'm you know managing my wife and doing a bunch of other things at the same time. So it's um yeah, a bit of a juggle at the moment. The podcast isn't monetized, so really, it's just it's kind of like a a hobby really at the moment that I'm enjoying to do. And yeah. it's only through the course of doing it that I'm kind of going, oh, wow, actually there's this idea and there's this opportunity and I could kind of do that.
1: It's, it's an a organic thing at the moment. Yeah. Well, there's a, a brilliant book by a, an economist by the name of John Kay called Obliquity. And what it shows very, very persuasively is where we want to get is usually achieved by methods that we didn't even think of. So hypothetically, someone wants to make a million dollars, and they head off in this direction, and then they find something talking to someone at a party that was opposite to what they 've been working on, which delivers the the million dollars and you know something like podcasting, the obliquitousness of it is unbelievable, like three years of podcasting, what will happen, who will contact you, who you meet, the ideas you 'll have you know incredible, absolutely like there's so many different versions of wealth there's immediate payment for doing something and then there's all this ancillary knowledge and wisdom and connections and discoveries and in many ways that's that's much greater wealth
0: Right, mean, that's beautiful <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> ah that's so cool
0: i love hearing that wow that's amazing so tell me i mean you've written a bunch of books as well you know inspirational motivational and specific you know how to build a business books Tell me, I've read a few of them over the years. Tell me, are you writing at the moment? Does your day include writing your next book and how are the books
1: going? Yeah, well, my my most recent book, which is pretty recent, is uh, called Win Fast, a Quick Ways to Achieve More, Earn More and Be More. So most people don't have time to read a book. And so every chapter is like one and a half pages. There's 80 different ways to succeed faster. And so kind of a book for a non-book world, in a way, and so that's that's really good. That's in Australia and and you know just launched in America as well. And uh, so I'm booked out at the moment. You know, like I just at the moment I just want to have a rest from books as such. Huge undertakings. I'm just doing a, a bit of blogging, but. I like doing a book for this reason that when I was in the advertising industry, it's so ephemeral, it's so temporary, you know. If you do a a newspaper ad, it's as they say, it's tomorrow's fish and chip uh, wrapping. And yet a book is incredible because literally 15 years later, you'll be at an airport and someone will go, hi, uh, my name's John, you don't know me, but I have a book of yours that you that you wrote 15 years ago, and it's, it's really made an impact on me, right? You don't get that with anything else, really. The books have this incredible nature which impact people for a long period of time. Mate, tell me,
0: in your life, whether it's sort of business or personal, you, you don't have to go there, what's the
1: most challenging thing you're confronting right now? Mm, that's a good question. Look, the way I kind of look at life, uh, I'm very into, into personal development, and the the number one thing I think about is am I being the person that I, I could be? And so at the end of the day, one of the things I you know always recommend to my coaching clients, but I also do, is I have this little black moleskin book. And I at the end of it I review how I was during the day. And often I'm disappointed with how I was versus the kind of standard that I set myself. And the higher standard that we set ourselves, the more often we're going to fall short, obviously. And I'm driving myself to try, try and be a better person than I was. And so the biggest challenge is, you know, being lazy when you should work hard, being rude when you should have been polite, being uh, impatient when you should have been patient, being human. That's the challenge, is, is being human and trying to be a better human. You know, and I do not want to give the impression that I think that I'm some amazing human at all. But I'm I'm in the battleground, and it's interesting. Muhammad uh, said that after a big war, you know, we've we've finished the smaller war, and now we go back to the greater war. And someone said, "Well, what's that?" and said, "The war against ourselves," and and just trying to, you know be victorious over that and you know try and have fun with it but but you know some days you just go you know wasn't very good that's a challenge yeah
0: no thanks for sharing mate that's Mm. that's very honest and i can relate to that too Mm. yeah i mean particularly once you have kids your degree of responsibility or for most people not everyone kind of changes and you kind of like wow i'm far more conscious of my actions yeah. And the things I say than I used to be. I want to be a better person. I want to. I, I want the best for my child. I need to take more responsibility for the planet, for the future. You know, I want them to have a good life. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah,
1: I, I imagine. How old are your kids now? Well, one just turned seven, and one one's about two and a half. So I'm a bit of a beginner with the whole kid thing. How? What yeah. about yours? One, and she's
0: 16. Yeah. Right. But, um, uh, uh. Yeah. So in a way, it's yeah, it's a whole new sort of phase we're clocking over yeah, into, that. about to leave school, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, that's sort of you know, flushing up all kinds of other questions for us: where we're going to live, we're sort of free again. You know, it, it's a, it's really interesting these uh, stages you go through, isn't it?
1: It is. Yeah. And, and look, and for me, the trick is also to not get weighed down by it either. You know, to try and have daily joy. At the same time, you're trying to get better or at the same time you've got you know various hassles that might occur in the family or 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 just in general life and you know it's such an art isn't it it's to try and get this right
0: it it really is and i I don't know I think the toughest job there is is raising kids oh yeah you know it's a it's um some days I remember when our daughter was younger it's kind of like oh god I'm so glad I'm going to work just to get a sort of break from that (laughs) (laughs) That, and she's a great kid you know and and she's in fact we're um we're fortunate she's not at all the you know the stereotypical teenager rebellious whatever she's you know she's like our our best friend she's a sweetie so um yeah yeah Yeah. it it doesn't have to be that way which is good news that the stereotypical rebellious way yeah you know yeah so uh there you go. Um, mate, what sort of kid were you? Like, where did you grow up and what school? And I know you went to uni, did you? Or were you no. in advertising at 21? Yeah, what Yeah, was-
1: I, hate, I hated school. Okay. And um, I tried to leave school. In fact, I, I read this article in the newspaper about an advertising guy. And uh, I'd also watched Bewitched. And Darren from Bewitched, that, that show in the 70s, 80s, um, he was an advertising guy. And I thought, wow, this whole advertising thing was really great. And my mum got me work experience at age 15 at a really good agency at the time, which was Schofield Sherbin Baker. And I saw all these guys, wore, you know, wearing jeans and, and playing darts. And I thought, man, that's, that's a career. That's what I want to do. And I, I wanted anything that didn't involve more study. So I didn't go to university. I've lectured at four different universities, but I've never went to university and and did everything I could to not finish school. I had a job at 17 uh, in advertising. My mum wouldn't let me take it. And then my last year, when everyone's doing the HSC and studying their ass off, literally four days a week, I get on a bus after school and I go over to Neutral Bay and I'd write these little uh, ads and marketing promotional things at an agency in my final year of school. And so... It was School finished, and everybody said, oh, are you going to take a break after 12 years of school? I said, I've, I haven't done anything. I'm going straight to work. So two weeks after the HSC, I was full-time in advertising. Um, but in answer to your question, grew up in the east in Sydney, went right. to Sydney Grammar, right. which, is a, which is a great school. Or I don't know if it is now, but it, it probably is, uh, for this reason, that if you're an individual, you didn't get your head smashed in. So, you know, the weird, nerdy computer guys, they were left alone. The, the uh, guys who were of, of different sexual persuasion, they were left alone. The library guys, they were left alone. The football guys were over, uh, over there. Everybody was left in peace. And from what I hear in a lot of boys' schools, that is not happening now. And, and for that reason alone, grammar was a, was a great school and probably still is.
0: Yeah, Wow. Yeah, I went to Scots, and I'd say it wasn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> still today, I hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I survived it, but yeah, I don't look back fondly. That that's for sure. And yeah, I didn't go to uni. I got out of school and went. Oh God, thank God that's over, and yeah. just went went and got a job.
1: Yeah, started started working. Um, so yeah, the, pro- int- the problem with school, the problem which is still today is the subjects are mostly useless. Like I remember in my HSE year staying up late at night, memorising for geography the rainfalls in the west coast of West Malaysia. Now, what kind of crap are they filling people with, you know? What about first aid? Or everybody's got to own a house, how to choose a house? Or how to um, uh, safely invest so that you don't go broke? I mean, things that might matter.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Something that's become apparent through the podcast is Of the, uh, I guess it's not that surprising, but the trailblazing types and the entrepreneurs and artists and people I've been chatting to, you know, the majority of them didn't go to uni and just uh, many of them left school 14, 15 and just got out there working and got amongst it. Clearly, you need to go and, you know, go to uni. You want to be a doctor, lawyer, you know, those traditional paths. You've got to do it and that's great. If that's what your purpose is, fabulous. But yeah, I've been surprised. How few of those there's been. Yeah. Um, But hey, I'm not talking to lawyers and doctors thus far. So that's
1: probably why the percentages are what they are. Look, I I, I think obviously uni is fantastic. I don't want to bag uni and a lot of professions Mm. need it. But I mean, that is a field that is going to have a great reckoning. You know, the amount of money they charge typically in most countries for what they provide versus other ways that are going to come and circumvent that online or, or different modes of teaching or new practicalities or, or shortening courses to their optimum efficiency. I think that industry over the next 30 years is, is going to get, you know, get into
0: a lot of difficulties. Yeah, I think you're right. And there's got to be more focus on the doing, the practical side of things rather than just the theory side, isn't there?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely.
0: Because they're the skills you need need out in life. For sure. And, um, so if you're, I mean, you know, your kids were at school now, would you be encouraging them to head off to uni or would you be getting them working
1: as soon as possible? Oh, no, I, I think if they, if they want to go to uni, they, they should. If they have a career that needs, needs uni, they should. I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not against uni per se for the right scenario. What I'm against is this perception that if I don't do well at school, I'm not going to get the marks to uni and my life's over. And a lot of people think that. You know, a lot of people think, oh, man, I didn't get a school mark. I'm no good. I saw that at grammar. You know, grammar had so many intelligent people. But because it was a super academic school, some of them didn't do well. And they took on the self-identity that they weren't going to amount to much. And some of them are brilliant, but they, they believed, oh, man, my HSC mark wasn't good, that's the end of me, can't go to uni. But th- they need more examples of people like you um, who have done great things without going to uni to, to say it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's okay. You can still do extraordinary, maybe even greater things uh, if, you, if you don't have a degree. Yeah,
0: good point. Are you conscious of what your single purpose
1: is in life? Well, uh, yes, my view of my purpose is that the purpose of a human is to evolve their soul, that that's our purpose on Earth, to go back with our soul refined to a higher level. Now, in addition to that, is to have fun. So that's what I think the, uh, the purpose of life is, and hopefully make a contribution. And I see that, and I, you know most days of the week, I read that as my aim. So um yeah, that's that's what I want to That's wanna beautiful. Interview. Yeah. And clearly you like to help people as well. Yeah. Well, it feels good. You know, you feel good, you feel useful. You know, it's really uh interesting. Uh, there's a guy in Iran, a great uh, Sufi mystic. And this general came in to see him. And this general was in misery because he had not been given the top post in the army. And he said, I'm so depressed. My life's has to nothing. I spent my whole life trying to get to this exalted uh, position. And, and I didn't. And you've got to help me. I I, I you know, I feel like killing myself. And the, the Sufi master said, well, I, I can solve this for you, but you're not going to like the medicine. And he said, oh, no, I'll take it. Give me the medicine. I can, I can take anything. He said, well, the medicine is this. For the next few months, I want you to go around and deliver coal for people's fires each day and that's your new profession in any spare time you have go to the smallest houses the poorest people and give them coal and the guy kind of objected to this i'm a general what am i doing giving coal and he says the problem is you obsess with yourself and you need to switch to caring for others and then you won't be depressed then you won't be down and i think there's so much truth to that that trying to do things to help others just makes us feel good, you know, makes us feel better. And it's the cure for a lot of the malaise and and depression, I think, in a lot of people is just spending all day thinking about their position, their scenario, instead of turning their gaze to someone else.
0: Love that. Couldn't agree more. Mm. Wow. That makes me think about social media. Obviously, that's changed and is changing daily. You've got young kids what age do you think you're going to give them a phone? How much are you looking at social media and and where do you think it's going to go?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's, it's everything, isn't it? It's magnificent, it's terrible all at once. And I don't do that much social media myself, Um, kind of the minimum. I'm barely on it. I've got to up that because I just obviously got to be more of a participant in a dominating media. But I just see even with my oldest kid, you know, the, they're being affected by all these YouTube videos and sometimes in a really good way and then sometimes in a not a good way. And the YouTube has almost become one of her main teachers in life, how to react, how to socially uh, integrate because she's watching, for instance, a lot of American YouTube videos and how they express themselves and, and stuff like that. And it's becoming a teacher and that's pretty frightening. And uh, I don't know what the answer is. We're, we're at this kind of nascent period of, of social media where we can see the problems, but it's not quite clear what the solutions are. I mean, what do you think? How do you handle it with social media and your family?
0: Yeah, yeah it, it is a challenge. Exactly what you've articulated has happened with our daughter as well. It's like for a couple of years, not so much right now, what she wanted to do in life was be a YouTuber. Yeah. and they're the you know kind of role models that she's been looking towards fortunately she's a great communicator and we have great conversations and we talk about these things and she you know offers up these problems and we talk about them and and she responds to common sense and when we say you know, if we can see her getting overly introverted about her body or this or that, you know, she may have just been on watching the latest bikini model on Instagram or something and going, God, I wish I could wear a bikini and look like that. And, you know, and then we get that off, she might have a cry and then boom, it's gone and she's back and she's herself. So it's kind of, in a way, it's um, conversation and confronting it um, and being conscious of how much she's on it and what she's watching. It's like, okay, I think that's enough. Why don't you go and take the dog for a walk? And then, you know, it's just those things. You can't uh, prohibit it, I don't think, because it is the predominant media, as you said. So it's just being aware of it and keeping them busy. You know, I think the, the more time they've got doing nothing and sitting around just, you know, on social media isn't great. It comes back to that work thing. I think the earliest you can get their exchange in, get them working for what they get, not just give everything to them all the time, actually get them working and contributing to the family. Keep them busy. Yeah, spot on. That seems to be the key. Yeah,
1: you're right. Thus far. You're um, absolutely right because they, they they fill their spare time with their phone.
0: Yeah, that's and, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I just think growing up was hard enough with none of that, and now seeing what everybody's doing, what parties they're going, they didn't invite you, that person's so-called achieving more than you at age 15, and what am I doing? And, and, and these amazing apps that now make film footage, they thin people out, they improve your skin, they improve your looks, live as you're broadcasting, and it's just making people think you've got to be perfect and that these people are perfect and they're so not perfect. And a lot of them are miserable, and you know, proffering up this... Amazing BS life that they're supposedly living. And, uh, you know, one of the things I hate about it is often the moment is lost. So there's a moment of joy, and everybody takes out the camera so they can, you know, turn it into a media moment and they're no longer present for the moment of joy. And that's just insidious. But look, it's just an amplifier, isn't it? Amplifies good, amplifies bad. And it's, you know, I guess kids will handle it. Oh, no, you, you're absolutely right, mate.
0: Wow. Well, look, I mean, I could chat for hours with you Did and I? I can see why you're a busy man consulting people daily all over the globe. You've still got the wisdom, the creative spark, but I can see you want to make a difference. You, You want to, I don't know, do you think of legacy? Is that something that comes to mind at this point in your life?
1: Not so much as in, you know, Stake in the sand, funeral, wasn't that an amazing guide? Which I think it kind of, that's kind of an ego legacy, more so for my own peace of mind that I want to feel like I didn't muck it up. You know, that's, if I feel, yes, I made a contribution, yes, I kind of evolved and yes, I had a good time, um, that's enough legacy, I think. And the rest is in the sands of time, you know, trying to get some kind of permanence in our existence with legacy or with any other thing, I think is, is a tough one. That's beautiful. I'm going to wrap it up in a
0: sec, but one other thing just came to mind as you were answering then was, and about the social media thing, is that you, along with George as a, a great Australian creative mind, created what was called the Virtual Creative Department, which was totally ahead of its time. It was a trailblazing ad agency that was around, I mean, over 20 years ago, that had the concept of being a virtual creative department that wasn't in a giant office and people could work from home more, which is basically what's happening now. So it only just occurred to me
1: how trailblazing that was. Well, all credit goes to George. I joined him. Oh, okay. He had it. Right. Uh, I joined him as a partner about, I think, about two years in to virtual creative department. But you absolutely, you're right. He created that when no one was doing anything virtually. And it was a precursor to the way so much of work actually happens now. And, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like inventing the Tesla in the 70s. It's like, whoa. Totally. Yeah. People, I mean, I remember
0: other agencies were laughing at him. Yeah. Uh, it's only occurred to me now. Wow. It's exactly what's played out. Mate, i just gone off on
1: another tangent then as as I was about to wrap up. But um, But it's so relevant because right now there's people listening and watching to the podcast who are doing something where someone's saying that's ridiculous and yet may well be the future of their industry or, or something. And, you know, people have just got to hold steady, not be dogmatic, listen to it if someone, you know, says it's wrong for whatever reason. But even if you're the only person in the world who thinks it's right, if you still think it's right, keep on keep on going because you know that's how the world progresses is is people like that, not everybody who who just does what everybody else has always done.
0: Mate, I love that. Keep going, keep creating. That's a good spot to wrap up. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Simon. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Lee. that was a really interesting conversation for me. I really had no idea of the impact that Simon had had on my life until I began preparing for this podcast. I find it really interesting the things that flush up through the course of doing these. And, you know, I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. In fact, this is the last one for 2020. What a year it's been. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next year with plenty more fabulous guests. And yeah, there you go. But if you want to know more about Simon, his books and his mentoring work, head to his website, simonreynolds.com. That's Simon with two I's, reynolds.com. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great break or holiday season, Christmas, whatever you're doing. And until next year, live large.
1: Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.